they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome. Welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday of Easter week. <laughs> it's Friday and it's still Easter. We're still celebrating Easter. This is the Friday within the octave of Easter. And of course, um, we want to remind you that t- um, this weekend is Divine Mercy Sunday. And tomorrow at 11 o'clock, we'll be podcasting two presentations by Father Calloway to help us all understand more greatly this great feast of Divine Mercy that the Church has instituted. Amen. And uh, we want to look at today's gospel reading, and then we want to look at the resurrection. And what does it mean for us? And what difference does it make if it was real or not real? (laughs) So let's just dive right in here and take a look at what um, what we have. Today's gospel is from John, John 21, verses Chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. So he said to them, Cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you will find something. So they cast it and were not able to pull it in but because of the number of fish. So the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, Mm -hmm. he tucked in his garments, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from the shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. When they climbed on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore full of 153 large fish. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Mm -hmm. Jesus came over and took the fret, excuse me, Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them, and in like manner the fish. This is now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have, we have a gospel here, and it, mm-hmm. it gives us a, an account of a, a miracle, actually. Mm-hmm. But it says, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples at the site, uh, again at the Sea of Tiberias. After the resurrection... Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 40 days, but he wasn't with them constantly the way he had been before his resurrection. And he's present now in his risen, ascended, his risen, glorified state. He hasn't ascended yet. He Mm -hmm. will ascend. But he's present in his risen, glorified state. They don't recognize him. And um, he he doesn't have to show them himself as he is, but he does. Mm -hmm. 
And this is, you know, God, God is always condescending to us, trying to draw us closer to him into union with himself. So it gives the names of some of the apostles there, and then there were two other disciples, and they're together. They're there at the shore of Peter, shore of the Sea of Tiberias, which is um, the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias was just another name for that. They called it that also. And Simon Peter is there, and he says, I'm going fishing. And the others just say, we're going with you. <laughs> you know, I remember Father Fessio one time was commenting on this, and he says, Simon, Peter doesn't say, well, let's, let's call a council. Let's, let's uh, take a, a vote. Let's, yeah, uh, finger in the wind. Yeah, put, you know, what, what do we want to do here, you know? And the other apostles don't say, well, you know, Peter, maybe I don't want to go fishing, you know? I just, right, right away, Peter says, let's go fishing, and they do it. And, and the thing is, is it's, they're waiting for the Lord to give them further instructions. They mm-hmm. know the Lord is risen now. What does he want us to do? He hasn't fully instructed them as to what right. he wants them to do and expects of them. He hasn't sent the Holy Spirit yet because he hasn't gone to heaven himself. Right. And so they go back to fishing. They have to support themselves. And as long as the way that you're supporting yourself is not sinful in and of itself or a near occasion of sin, you can go back to your job after your conversion. I, one of the commentators mentioned this, and it's interesting. Matthew doesn't go back to tax collecting after his conversion because the tax collecting is too much of a near occasion of sin. There's too much of a temptation to extort people. Okay, so he finds you know you find new employment, but the apostles had to support themselves. So fishing was not a sinful em- employment. So they go back to fishing. They're waiting for instructions from the Lord. They fish all night. They're tired. I remember Mother Angelica commenting on this. And she said, here, Jesus is standing on the shore. Children, have you caught anything? And she says, I know what I would have said if I was, you know, I was, it was me. You know, know, I've been working all night and my boat is empty. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) That's mother's. That's mother. (laughs) But, but Peter, they just say, no, no, we haven't. And so he tells them to cast their, their net off the right side of the boat. The foster of the church saw great symbolism here. And, and that the right side of the boat symbolizing the right side of Christ. They, the, the 153 fish, and as Monsignor said in his sermon this morning, it's just because they caught 153 fish. But, but can we understand a deeper meaning in that 153, in that number? Mm. And there are several, several things going on here. One is that um, apparently there are, there's been some studies done by, um, I don't know if you call them zoologists, but... There are 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. Hmm. So what that would represent is 153 fish that would represent that. Each one. One of each, which means that the apostles are to go out and collect people from all nations of the world, from all races, you know, and and stations of life. That, That this isn't a church that's just for an exclusive group of people. It's for everyone. It is to be presented to everyone. Everyone has to freely choose whether they're going to join or not. Right. What's also interesting is they mentioned that the fish, that the net is not broken. Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. We're a little later in the gospel, but the net isn't broken. And the, what's interesting is they saw here, number one, there was another catch of fish on the Sea of Tiberias when Peter first meets Jesus. You know, they'd been fishing all night. And again, Jesus tells them, we'll go out. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, he uses Simon's boat to instruct the crowds. And then he says, cast out for but Lord, we've been at it all night. But if you say so, <laughs> so he goes out and he catches this huge catch of fish. Yeah. And in that instance, the nets were breaking. The, the, the number was so great, the nets were breaking. Mm-hmm. And so another boat had to come and help them bring in the fish. Mm-hmm. Well, that represented the fact that in the church, there would be breaks. There would be schisms and heresies yeah. that would arise. Now you have the resurrection of the Lord, and this 
catch a fish represents the church in its unity, that the church will be whole in its unity. And that doesn't mean that maybe people are converted to the church and then don't leave. You know, just because we're Christian at one point in our life, that doesn't guarantee we're always going to remain Christian. Mm-hmm. We have to work at that. Right. We have to strive to remain faithful to Christ. Right. You know, this idea that we're once saved, always saved. There's nothing biblical about it. Nope. Judas was with Jesus for three years. And in the end, Judas went and hung himself. Yeah. You know, and there were people who did apostatize. They, they denied their faith in under persecution in the early church. So we have to pray for the grace of final perseverance. We have to beg God that we will remain faithful like the apostles did. You know, the apostles all died as martyrs um, other than John, who they tried to martyr. They boiled him him in oil, (laughs) (laughs) didn't kill him. um, So he was exiled. But also when they're there and they make this great catch of fish, who's the first one to recognize that it's Jesus? It's John. And again, John is the youngest of the disciples, and John represents the church of love. And, and love is always first to recognize, but love waits for authority. And again, it's not John who jumps into the water to go and greet Jesus. It's Peter. And it says that Peter was lightly clad, so he tucks in his garments. When they're fishing, yeah, they would strip to their underwear, and they would fish. They're working hard. But, but, the, but the fact that he's going to meet the Lord, he puts his clothing on. And as, as Monsignor said this morning in the sermon, you don't go out and meet the boss in your underwear. Yeah. You know, this is, this is God. This is, he knows who this is. And so he, in modesty, he covers himself to go to greet Jesus. And then he drags these fish ashore. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. It's, they say, John says here, it's the third time. Well, if you count the accounts where he's appeared to someone since his death, there's about seven, maybe nine accounts. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They're say, he's saying the third. The third time he appeared to them as a group. Yeah. Now, the whole group of apostles isn't here, but there's quite a few of them there. You have Nathaniel, you have um, Thomas, you have Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and John and James, and then you have uh, two other disciples. So this is a group of men, disciples of Jesus. And this is the third time he's appeared to a group. You know, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to Peter. He, you know, mm-hmm. and then he appears to the two disciples on the road to Amos. And so it's not, it's, it's no contradiction here. There's just a, um, it's the third time he appears to them as a group. So we want, we want to remember that Jesus is always trying to call us to himself. He's following his disciples. He had told them to go to Galilee and they would see him there. So they've gone to Galilee. They're at the Sea of Tiberias. And Peter's like, well, I'm going to go fishing. Jesus isn't here yet. Um, let's go fishing while we're waiting. You know, we need to, we need to have something to eat, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we support ourselves. Later on, Paul will say, if a man won't eat, don't let him. I mean, if a man won't work, if a man won't work, don't let him eat. Right. Because people were just sitting around doing nothing. And they were saying, oh, Jesus is coming. He's going to take us. And he's going to wrap, take us all up in heaven. And he's coming soon. And we don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Paul's, no, you, you need to work. While it, you know, while it is day, you work. And, and the Lord will come. But you don't just sit around twiddling your thumbs. You right. do your duty. And this is, again, it, it, what is, you know, our sanctification is in the doing Amen. of our duties of our state and life. That's what Our Lady of Fatima said. Amen. And so this is a reaffirmation of the gospel. We'll come back with more. Just want to remind everybody, Father Don Calloway will be here at 11 o'clock via the computer doing two presentations on Divine Mercy. This is Divine Mercy Sunday coming up. So Saturday, tomorrow, we'll have Father Don at 11 a.m. California time. I hope you can join us. We'll be right back. 
Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this 9th day of April, the Friday within the octave of Easter, and we're talking about the resurrection. Gee, why would we be talking about the resurrection this week? <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Octave of Easter, huh? Maybe. Yeah, it's the, the greatest feast of the, of the Christian year is Easter, and so we thank God for the resurrection, and we thank God for our faith. And we want to look at the gospel accounts, at gospel accounts, and it's a single. Remember, the church teaches us the gospel is a single gospel. We have a fourfold account of the gospel. We don't, the early church never saw the gospel as four gospels. It's a single gospel told by four, from four different aspects. Mm-hmm. And so you have different, the different evangelists taking different events and, um, you know, uh, uh, regarding the resurrection, the discovery of the empty tomb, and, and presenting them in, to the audience they were speaking to. Matthew was speaking to the Jewish audience. He wrote in Aramaic. Um, we have that as a, that's witnessed to not because we have the complete Aramaic gospel by Matthew, but because it, it, the historians tell us that he wrote in Aramaic. It was later translated into Greek. We have Mark writing the gospel as it was preached by Peter and, and Luke writing the gospel as it was preached by Paul. And then John wrote the gospel. And so each of them takes a different aspect. And in John's gospel, some people have you know, theologians sometimes complain, John's gospel is so different from the others, it must not be historically sound. Well, it's interesting about John's gospel is John, and we have the witness of the early church that says John didn't want to repeat unnecessarily any events that had already been, his is the last gospel written. He's aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels, their accounts, excuse me, the single gospel, but the, the aspect written by Matthew, the aspect written by Mark, and the aspect written by Luke, and he doesn't want to repeat anything that they've already revealed and talked about. And unnecessarily, there were a couple things he repeats, but mostly the things in John's gospel are things that haven't been told by the other. So he's, he's filling in the, in the mm-hmm. you know, kind of fleshing out as it were, you know, you have the bare bones and then John is filling in some of the flesh sure. there. So, um, yeah, the, the, there can appear to be, and there are, there, you know, when you read the, the accounts of the resurrection, there seem to be some contradictions there and there seems to be hard to reconcile certain things. But read it together as a single whole account and then see how it fits in. It's like, you know, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She runs off and tells Peter and John. Jesus appears to her along the road and tells her don't cling to her. But also she's standing outside the tomb crying. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do you, what, how did the sequence of events take place? And how do you tie it all together? You have, to, you have to work at it sometimes. You have to struggle with the, um, the details and actually ask for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand how does it all fit together. It's like a puzzle. And if you don't get the pieces in a puzzle together right, you're not going to get the right picture. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to inspire us because there can be no contradictions in Scripture because God is the author. And so this is this, you know, history of the church that, you know, in history of the life of, of salvation history, the, the Scriptures are... God revealing salvation history to us, his plan for mankind, and how he worked that out in his son. So um, we want to be aware of the fact that, number one, we trust the, the, the scriptures because God is the primary author. Mm-hmm. And Jesus Christ came and he established a church. And it's interesting because nowadays you have people saying, well, you know, was Jesus a real historical person? 
And if only if the only witness you have is the gospel and the Christians, how, how can we believe that? Well, what's interesting is we have a couple of authors who weren't Christian. One of them, one of them is Tacitus. He was a Roman historian uh, writing early in the second century. And um, Tacitus notes that um, he says, but not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, not all the atonements which could be presented to the gods availed to relieve Nero from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire of Rome. Hence, to suppress the rumor, he's talking, there was the fire. Nero set fire to Rome, and then he blamed the Christians for it, right? And in order to suppress the rumor that he was the one who had set the fire, he falsely charged with guilt and punished Christians Mm -hmm who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again. Um, in 49 AD, the, um, all the Jews had been expelled from, from Rome. And that's referred to in the Acts of the Apostles and, and in um, one of Paul's letters, I believe. But um, they were trying to get rid of the, the Jews because they were troublesome to Rome. But, the, but mm-hmm. the, this new sect, which had risen out of Judaism, was also suspect by the Romans. Not only Judea, where the mischievous orig- mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, were all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was made, first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of, the hate, of, as of hatred against mankind. And so the Christians were accused of hatred against mankind, and they were put to death under Nero. Christians were put to death under Nero. Um, but but the, thing, the point of this is, is that Tacitus... Witnesses to the fact that Christus, the founder of the Christians, you know, was that's Christ, Jesus Christ, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. And that, of course, is what the Gospels tell us. And then we have Pliny the Younger, and he mentions Jesus in um, 106 AD. And um, if I did the right, yeah. They affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate, in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves to a solemn oath not to any, not to any wicked deeds, but, not, but never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust, when they should be called upon to deliver it up. So Pliny is attesting here that the Christians meet on Sunday and that they offer hymns to Christ as to a God. <laughs> they believe that Jesus Christ was God. And they're offering hymns. And it's, it, it, it's an apparent description of Christians meeting for the Holy Eucharist on Sunday. So we have these two Roman authors who attest to the, um, the existence of of um, you know Tacitus directly the existence of Christ, uh, the existence of Jesus and his death under Pontius Pilate, um, Pliny to the existence of the Christian movement which claims that Christ was a god, 
um, and, you know, this, this man, Christ, was a god. And then we have also Josephus. Um, Josephus was a, um, a historian, a Jewish historian. Now, the interesting thing about Tacitus and Pliny, as you can kind of sense from their writing, neither of them were in favor of the Christians. They weren't favorable to the Christians. They're just telling historical facts that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate and that Christians worship Jesus as God. Okay. So then we have Josephus and he, he tells about, he talks about Jesus. At this time, there was a wise man, Jesus, good and virtuous. And many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Now, this is in jo Josephus's Antiquities. Um, I guess that's chapter 18, 33, the section 33 of chapter 18. So we have, you know, extra biblical evidence that Jesus really did exist. He really was a historical person. And then we have the scriptures. And it's interesting because in the scriptures you have, we're reading this week the Acts of the Apostles. And right away in the Acts of the Apostles, you have persecution of the early Christians. Um, you know, you have the, the Pentecost account um, on Monday of Easter week, I believe we have, yeah, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up with the 11. It's Acts 2, 14, 22 through 33. And it talks about Peter's um, sermon to the people who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, people from all over the known world and who spoke many languages. And they heard the apostles, all of them heard the apostles speaking in their own language. And they were speaking about the marvels that God had done, what God had done in Jesus. And that... Um, you know, that he had been raised from the dead. And so Peter says, we, you delivered him up to death to be killed by Gentiles, but he was raised again on the third day. And the people are like, well, what are we supposed to do? And he says, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that doesn't mean I baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to be baptized with the formula that Jesus had given to his apostles at the end of the, the gospel. He says, go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that's the formula for baptism that Jesus himself gave in the gospel. And so this is what they do. They baptize the people. And then it goes on for Tuesday, you know, we're continuing with the, um, the reading from the Acts of the Apostles and Peter and John go up to the temple and they heal um, a man who was lame from birth and then because they heal this man and they're telling people that he was healed in Jesus's name and that they should repent of their sins and, you know, they're apprehended by, by the authorities and they're brought in to, to give testimony. And so um, in Acts 4, 1 through 12, Peter and John ha testify to them. He says, you know, by what power and by what name has this been done? Peter says, leaders of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a crippled, namely by what means he was saved, then all of you and all the people of Israel should know that it was in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. In his name, this man stands before you healed. 
He is the stone rejected by the, the builders. Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation through anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven given to the human race by which we are to be saved. Now, this is not, you know, accepted with, with great, um, <laughs> how do you say this? They weren't rejoicing. The Sanhedrin was not rejoicing at what Peter was saying. And so, well, what are we supposed to do with them? They're, they're going to spread this further. And so they called them back and they ordered them not to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, however, said, you judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey God or to obey you. Are we supposed to disobey God in order to obey you? And um, they threatened them, but they didn't really have a way to punish them at that time. So they released them. And, you know, of course, the disciples are, are, are rejoicing. They've spent a night in prison because they were arrested for speaking about Jesus. And um, they've boldly proclaimed before the Jewish Sanhedrin the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to talk more about this as we get on and, and also what this witness will eventually cost them, this witness to the resurrection. So thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on this Friday of Easter week. Happy Easter to everyone. We'll be back in a few moments. Remember to join us tomorrow on the computer with Father Callaway. Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, April the 9th, 2021. Yep. Happy Easter. Friday of Easter week. So does that mean this is a rare Friday where we can actually celebrate? Oh, absolutely. We celebrate because yeah. it's it's Friday of Easter. We're still celebrating Easter. Yeah. We said the glory at Mass today. So um, and and uh, there's a there's a sequence for Easter. Um, the Christians to the Paschal victim, Victame Pascali Laudes. Um, but um, it's optional. But it can be sung during the week. It's it's sung after the runs responsorial psalm and before the gospels and mm. it's a beautiful you know testing to the resurrection of christ so we have here you know it's funny because some of the you know scholars have said well you know obviously the the apostles would have seen the risen lord because they would have conjured him up in their imagination because they were expecting the resurrection is that really the case well what do we have you know on the first day of the week mary magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and she came why we were told in the the other accounts she came to anoint a dead body. Mary and the women went to the tomb to anoint a dead body. And they were going with spices that they had prepared in order to properly anoint the body of Jesus. And she comes, and, you know, it's interesting. In the accounts of the Gospels, Jesus doesn't come out of the tomb in front of the guards. And remember, we have the qualities of the, the resurrected body. And the quality, one of the qualities of the resurrected body is it can pass through material things. It can pass through walls and stone. So Jesus is not in the tomb. And the women know this because an angel comes and removes the stone. In, in one of the gospel accounts, um, it tells us that an angel comes and removes the stone and tells them, why are you looking for the dead one who, one who is living among the dead? Mm. He's not here. He's not dead. Right. You know, this, is, this is a burial ground for the dead. He's not here. Don't look for him here. You know, he has risen. And tell his apostles and Peter that he will go before you to Galilee. So the, the, they weren't expecting this resurrection. 
And Mary Magdalene, according to John's gospel, John 20, one through nine, goes off to tell Peter and John and Peter and John come running to the tomb and they, they see and um, they're still, it's like they're incredulous. They're mm-hmm. really not sure what to make of it all. It's like, well, okay, his body is gone. And not only that, the, the clothes that were wrapping him are still in the tomb. Yeah, They're there. So why would somebody steal a body and leave the clothes that wrap the body? You know, steal, unwrap the body, unwrap the dead body, and then, you know, yeah. carry off a naked body. Um, so we, the apostles were not expecting the resurrection. The Lord has to prove to them that it's really him. So when he appears to them on, on Easter Sunday night in the upper room, he comes to them and he says, peace be with you. And they're like, what, what, what? And he says, do you have something here to eat? You know, and <laughs> so he, that he's not a ghost. Yeah, right? to prove that he's not a ghost, that he really. And so he eats with them. He doesn't have to eat your resurrected body. You don't have to eat, but you're oh, still capable of eating. That's right. You still have a real physical body and you can still really eat, but you won't need to eat. So um, Jesus eats with them and proves to them. And then, of course, Thomas isn't there that first night. So a week later, they're gathered again. And Thomas said, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I can you know, probe the nail, the nail marks in his hands and put my hand into his side. Mm. And so Jesus appears to them again a week later. And they're, they're Thomas. This time, Thomas is with them. And Jesus comes and he says, Thomas, come on, put your finger into my hands and put your hand into my side. Do not persist in your unbelief, but believe. And Thomas falls down and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Mm. And, and so we, they acknowledge, I mean, first of all, this resurrection shows that Jesus truly is God. He died on the cross. They all saw it. They knew they, they, he was handed over to the Romans. They saw from a distance. They were afraid to show themselves. And then after, of course, the crucifixion, they ran and hid and they were locked in the upper room. They were totally locked in the room. Jesus didn't come through an open door. He passed through the walls. You know, Mary, that my Lord and my God brings me back to when we receive Holy Communion, that that statement there is probably a good idea for us followers of Christ. But before we receive Holy Communion, to say, my Lord and my God. Absolutely, because that's who we are receiving. Yeah, very clearly. You know, and it's beautiful. I mean, this weekend is, is the um, divine mercy. Mm-hmm. And um, in Jesus gave Saint Faustina, he told her, he said, you know, it's lack of trust mm-hmm. more than sin that keeps people from becoming there saints. He's called us all to be saints. We're all mm-hmm. called to live in union with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And this is what he's trying to draw his apostles into this union. Oh. He's trying to bring them closer to himself and to accept he had promised that he wouldn't stay dead. He had promised he would rise from the dead, but they had no concept. I mean, yeah, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus came back to a regular life. You know, when Jesus rises from the dead, he doesn't raise to a regular human life where he's going to have to die again. Yeah. He died once for all. That's it. And then he raises to a new glorified state so much so that they don't even recognize him. He has a glorified body, and it's, it's beyond recognition. And um, Jesus said to St. Faustina, Know, my daughter, that between me and you there is a bottomless abyss, an abyss which separates the Creator from the creature. But this abyss is filled with my mercy. I raise you up to myself, not that I have need of you, but it is solely out of mercy that I grant you the grace of union with myself. And this is Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. But Jesus also means for this to be permanent in union 
in heaven. And we have to pray for that grace to final perseverance. But my Lord and my God, when we receive Holy Communion, this is really God because it's the second person of the Blessed Trinity who took to himself a human nature. And it's also his human nature we receive. We receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in its risen, ascended, glorified state. And God unites us to himself. Now, he did this first in baptism when God comes to dwell in us. We receive the Trinity. We become temples of God, temples of his Holy Spirit. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity dwells in us. And this is a great mystery, and it's a great gift. It's a blessing. It's not owed to us. It's freely given. Mm -hmm. It's God condescending to us to give himself to us. And so we have to understand that the resurrection is the guarantee of the gospel. You know, Paul, you asked me at the end of the um, Terry and Jesse show about Mm -hmm. Paul and what he said. Right. And Paul in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians talks about the resurrection of Christ. I remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first import what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accord with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Mm -hmm. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Hmm. though it was not I, but the grace of God, which is with me. Whether Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Mm. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are the most of all men to be most pitied. But in fact... But in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And Paul testifies to this. This is not a spiritual resurrection. They, the apostles say we ate and drank with him after he was raised from the dead. He appeared to them. They could touch him. They could feel him. They could speak to him. Mary Magdalene clings to his feet. Do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father. She, it's not time for you to cling to me. It's time for you to go and spread the gospel now. And, and the Holy Spirit will come, and then you will preach to all nations. But Mary is the first witness, public witness, of the resurrection. She goes to tell the apostles. 
That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't appear to his mother first, but he appears to his mother, and this is tradition, and the church fathers have always taught this. It wasn't the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. It wasn't her job to spread the news of the, the resurrection. It was for Mary Magdalene. Jesus chose Mary. But then it's for the apostles to spread this news, and they do. And Paul, who had persecuted the church and then is converted by Jesus appearing to him, he also saw the resurrected Jesus. And, and he is converted, and he preaches the resurrection as a fact, not as a myth, not as some kind of a, a mass hysteria. And, you know, how many people will die for a lie? You know, Mary, think about how unique Christianity is, though. Exactly. Because all the other world founders of religions, yes, they didn't resurrect from the dead. No, they didn't. They're de- all of them. Their tombs are still with us. Yes. There is no tomb for but Jesus. I just, I just point that out as the uniqueness of Christianity. And again, it makes it very clear, very clear in the Bible that Jesus did resurrect. Yeah. And so those who do not believe really deny, in my humble opinion, the accuracy of the Bible. Right, exactly. And, and the thing is, is that God did raise Jesus from the dead. And the, again, the church affirms the historicity of the Gospels. She affirms mm-hmm. that what is written in the scriptures is what, That's you know, right. for the, in the New Testament, what Jesus really did and taught while living among men, mm-hmm. and that what's written in the scriptures is really that the Holy Spirit is the primary author, and so that it's authentic, and it's believable, and it's um, trustworthy. Amen. And that's why we believe that what's in this book, the Bible, uh, is true, because the church actually is the grantor of this and tells us that these are to be believed. And uh, unfortunately, like I said, some people in the church don't believe it. Uh, We pray for their conversion, because that's what they need, a conversion. We'll be back with more, The Bible with the Bible. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, April 9th, 2021, Friday of Easter week. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Or Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. So we are looking at the resurrection, and is this a historical fact, or was it just a myth? Well, according to the Gospels, it's a historical fact, and according to the, you know, the witness of the early church, it's, it's, a, it's a historical fact, and we believe in the resurrection of the dead because Christ is raised from the dead, and so um, we know that our bodies will be resurrected because this is what we were promised. And we have what witness? I mean, what is what is the guarantee of this? We have... In the gospel, okay, we have a single gospel told from four different aspects, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in every single one of those four aspects, they all relate the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The tomb was empty on Sunday morning. The burial clause remained in the tomb, but there's no body there. All right? And we have that, the Shroud of Turin, which, you know, Science can't say that it's the burial cloth of Jesus, but the church can say this is this has been here since the beginning. It's a, it's a relic of our Lord. We also have the face cloth, and um, the and these things were saved by the church. They were precious to the church. The church still has in Valencia, Spain, the the chalice that Jesus used, the Holy Grail. 
There, there's no, it wasn't lost. It's not hidden. It's not, the church knows where it is. It was used by Pope John Paul II and by uh, Pope Benedict to celebrate Holy Mass. Okay, the church has it. We know where these relics are. These, these relics have been safeguarded by the church because Christ's body wasn't in the tomb on Sunday morning. It was gone. And that's clear from all, all from the single gospel that's told from four separate aspects. All four of the gospel writers tell us that the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. The women had gone to anoint the dead body. There is no dead body. It's risen. And then the Lord appears to them. He eats and drinks with them. And he appears to them over the course of 40 days. This is God's great mercy that when man had sinned and turned away from God, God sent his own son to deliver man from the power of sin and to raise him up to life in union with God. He calls us to union with himself. And this is what God desires. This is the desire of the heart of God, that all of us live in union with him, that we live our life in fidelity to the, to the gospel, in fidelity to God's law. And it, it doesn't change. God didn't change. He didn't change his mind because the 20th century came along and had all kinds of technology because we have all this new technology in the 21st century. God hasn't changed his mind. God still loves us. Jesus Christ still has full authority in heaven and earth. Do we think about that? He has full authority. Nothing can happen that God doesn't allow. God does not will evil. He allows man freedom. And he does allow us to choose sin because he allows us freedom. He wants us to freely love him. And in order to love, we have to be free. So we have to ask for the grace to be able to believe. We have to ask for the grace to give up our sins and to accept the resurrection as a real historical fact. And by the way, as a side note, there were, you know, there was a scripture scholar who was very prominent, Father Raymond Brown, in the later part of the 20th century and maybe early into the early part of the 21st century. And Father Benedict Groeschel had a chance to talk to Father Brown about the bodily resurrection, because at one point, Father Brown was questioning that. Father Brown actually wrote a book that said you have to question everything in the Gospels, which is not the position of the church. That was the position of a particular scripture scholar, theologian within the church. It wasn't the church's position. The church's position is that you must always approach the scriptures from an attitude of faith because this is God's word and God is speaking to you. And Father Raymond Brown, before he died, recanted his position on the bodily resurrection in terms of, he said before that it wasn't a real resurrection of the body. It was just a spiritual one. He said, no, there was a real bodily resurrection of Christ. It is a true historical fact. So while Father Raymond Brown did finally embrace the fullness of the faith in regards to the bodily resurrection of Christ before he died, thanks be to God. Praise God. God is so good. You know, God doesn't want sinners to die in their sin. He doesn't want us to die in error. So the witness of the gospels is clear and the witness of the early church is clear. The Acts of the Apostles is clear. And, and what did these people, you know, what did it mean? I said that we would talk about what did it mean for them that they gave witness to the, to, the, to the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. It meant persecution. It meant hardship. It meant traveling around the known world, uh, having no place to live, you know, traveling from place to place, itinerant preachers, as it were, depending on the people who heard them to support them. 
Um, although Paul did was a tent maker and he did continue tent making and he made his he earned his living that way. Although he said, I have a right to to expect support from those to whom I preach, because those that I bring the good news to have an obligation to support me. But he was a tent maker and he did work at that even while he was preaching because he didn't want to scandalize anybody. But but the reality is these men gave their lives as witnesses and not only the men, not only the preachers, not only the bishops of the church and the priests of the church, but the lay people too, the men and women, the families, the children, they witnessed to the resurrection of the Christ. I can give up everything of this world because I'm expecting a bodily resurrection. I'm expecting my own body to be raised from the dead as Christ was raised from the dead. Even as Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. As St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, why are you why are you questioning that there's a bodily resurrection? Because if there's not, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then our faith is in vain and we are the saddest of men. But the reality is, is Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And and these people gave their lives. As I said, you know, of the original 12 apostles, 11 remained faithful. Judas went to his own place, as as Peter said. And Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better if he had never been born. So, um... But the 11 remained faithful. And of those 11, 10 of them died as martyrs. John was boiled in oil and he didn't die. (laughs) They tried to martyr him and he didn't die. So he was sent to live in, in exile and he died of old age. John lived to be a very old man. But all the, many of the disciples, many of the apostles, many, many of the followers of Christ gave their lives rather than renounce the reality of the resurrection of the dead. Normally, people don't die for a lie. They won't give their life as a witness to a lie. But they will die for the truth, and they will die for goodness. And so people gave their lives as a witness to Christ. And people still give their lives as a witness to Christ. Do you realize martyrdom didn't stop in the first, second, third century? Martyrdom has continued throughout the history of Christianity. In every age, there have been martyrs. And, and those who didn't physically give their life as martyrs, there are those who have lived heroically the truths of the gospel and have been living witnesses, living martyrs, white martyrdom we call it, and even in the 20th century, as a matter of fact, Bishop Sheen once said, the 20th century saw more Christian martyrs than all previous 19th centuries put together. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all previous 19th centuries put together. And into the 21st century, martyrdom, of, uh, persecution of Christianity has really stepped up. It is, it, we're, we're becoming a persecuted church again. And in our country, we're not experiencing it to the point where in some countries, people are dying for the faith. They're giving their life as a witness. Monsignor Harris, as a matter of fact, a priest who says mass here at the chapel, he made his confession to a, I believe it was a Benedictine monk in Algiers who died a martyr for the faith. It was the abbot of a, of a, of a, um, a monastery there. And those, those monks were martyred by the Muslims in that country. And the, the abbot to whom Monsignor had made his confession died a martyr for the faith. 
But in our country, there's a different kind of persecution going on. It's a little more subtle. It's like, well, you can't go to church because you're going to make somebody sick. You have to have consideration for the people, so you can't go to church. And our churches have been closed down. Now, thanks be to God, the churches are opening again. Um, Our local pastor here, Sacred Heart Church on Workman, the big the big church um, which belongs to the Diocese of Los Angeles. The pastor sent out a robot, ro, ro, rotary call, rotary call, um, uh, pre-recorded on to say that on Monday, that's this coming Monday, the Monday after Mercy Sunday, they will have a daily mass in the church at noon, at noon, beginning this coming Monday, in Sacred Heart Church on Workman, the big church that's part of the Diocese of Los Angeles. They will have a daily mass on Mondays at noon, limited to 100 people. They will continue to have the outdoor mass at 5.30 p.m. on the, on the Welcome Plaza. Um, and, you know, as many people as can fit, can fit. So, and then they'll begin on the 24th, I believe. So a couple Sundays from now, they'll begin having Sunday mass in the church. Again, limiting it to the number of people who can be there. But this, and it's, you know, people say, well, this isn't a persecution of the church. Well... Look at what our government is doing right now. Look at the laws that they're trying to pass. And we need to pray. We need to believe in the resurrection. We need to hope in the resurrection. And we need to put our trust in Jesus. You know, Jesus once told St. Faustina, it's lack of trust more than sin that keeps people from being saints. You see, we don't make ourselves saints. And it's not our good works that makes us saints. And as Catholics, we never believed that. It's Jesus Christ. Oh, my God relying on thy infinite goodness, mercy, and promises, I hope to obtain pardon for my sins, the help of thy grace and life everlasting. Relying on thy infinite goodness, mercy, and promises, my God, I hope to obtain pardon for my sins and the help of thy grace and life everlasting. So Jesus said to St. Faustina, how very much I desire the salvation of souls. My dearest secretary, write that I want to pour out my divine life into human souls and sanctify them. It's the divine life within us that sanctifies us. It's God's life in us. If only they would were willing to accept my grace, the greatest sinners would achieve the great sanctity. If only they would trust in my mercy. The very inner depths of my being is filled to overflowing with mercy, and it is being poured out upon all I have created. My delight is to act in human in a human soul and to fill it with my mercy and to justify it. My kingdom on earth is my life in the human soul. Write, my secretary, that I myself am the spiritual guide of souls, and I guide them indirectly through the priests and lead each one on to sanctity by a road known to me alone. Jesus is the one who sanctifies us, and he sanctifies us by his presence in our soul, God living in us. This is what makes us holy. So we are to be holy, and beg God to make us holy by living in us and remaining in us. We ask God to keep us faithful and give us that grace of final perseverance. And yes, the resurrection of the body of Christ is a historical fact. He really rose from the dead. And so will we, if we remain faithful, we will rise to life everlasting. Dear Lord, if I'm not in the state of grace, put me in the state of grace. If I'm in the state of grace, keep me in the state of grace and please grant me the grace of final perseverance.